Well, if you haven't yet, take your Bibles and open them to Isaiah chapter 1. We're beginning now, after the introduction last week, our series that will last for a number of months in the book of Isaiah. And you'll be wanting to follow along as we are mostly in chapter 1 this morning. Now, you've heard it said that if an offer sounds too good to be true, it probably is. I don't know if any of you remember the Pepsi promotion back in the late 90s. They had a a campaign that said, buy Pepsi, get stuff. And there was a TV ad that said for 45 points, you could get a t-shirt. For 145, you could get sunglasses. For 1,450 points, you could get a leather jacket. And for 7 million points, you could get a Harrier jet. (laughs) Now, this is the most awesome flying machine out there. This is one of those military aircraft that actually descends straight up and down. They basically land and take off like a helicopter. Well, apparently, Pepsi did not have an actuary on their marketing team. Because along with that promotion, they said you could buy points for 10 cents each. Yeah, so you're doing the math. John Leonard was a 21-year-old business student. He quickly did the math. He knew that a Harrier jet retailed for $23 million, although you can't buy it because it's a military aircraft, but that's what it's worth. So he got five investors together, put 15 bottle caps in an envelope along with a check for $700,000 and mailed it to Pepsi and said, I'll take my Harrier jet now, please. (laughs) This really happened. And what do you imagine that Pepsi executive thought when he opened up that letter? Well, they sent him a letter back saying, we're sorry, this was just kind of an amusing thing. We didn't really mean it. And here's some free Pepsi coupons. You see, sometimes an offer is too good to be true. Now, by the way, the footnote of that story is that John Leonard was not satisfied with coupons, and he actually brought suit against Pepsi. And John, I don't know if you know who won that that lawsuit. Uh, Our kids said that today, Pepsi would have to give him a jet because they'd get slaughtered on social media. But back then in the 90s, the judge ruled that everybody should have figured out that they were just joking because nobody could... Imagine getting a $23 million gift for $700,000. Well, today, my friends, in Isaiah chapter 1, God has an offer that seems far too good to be true. And it is worth so much more than a Harrier jet. When we understand this offer, we're going to wonder, is this really true? And that's why we've heard people in India who for the first time hear the gospel say, This isn't just good news, it is too good news. It it can't really be true because it's right here in Isaiah 1.18. And this is the offer. Though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. This morning we're going to look at this offer of forgiveness and three aspects of it. The first one is in chapter 1. And after that, we're going to actually stop in the middle of the sermon and take communion. So I want you just to get ready for that little change in our schedule today. And then we're going to come back and look at two other aspects of that offer of forgiveness in chapter 2 very briefly. The first aspect of this offer of forgiveness is that it is not reasonable, chapter 1. It is beyond comprehension. Look at verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 1. 
Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. The setting is of a courtroom, and God is calling now heaven and earth to be witnesses in the case of God v. his people. And he's about to lay out his case against them as prosecutor. He has two main complaints in verses 2 to 10, and then two specific charges in verses 11 to 17. So first, his main complaints. The first complaint is his investment in them, verses 2 to 5. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. You see, he, he had reared these people. They were his children, both because he had created them, but also because he had chosen them. He says in Exodus 4.22, Israel is my firstborn son. But you know, birthing children is only the first part of the job. Then, then the, well, I don't know if it's the really hard job, because I don't know how hard that first job is. But the long job then starts of rearing children. And this is what God says he did. After he chose his people, he reared them, a word that means he made them strong or firm. He nourished them. He provided all that they needed to grow up to maturity. It says he brought them up. He helped them to get big. He, he cared for them. And those of you with children know that that is a big investment. Then secondly, he disciplined them, verse 5. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. And he goes on and on to describe his disciplining rod that he used the Assyrian power to administer to his people. God cares about the holiness of his people. And when they begin to go astray, God gets out the rod of discipline, as Hebrews 12 tells us. He wants to produce in his people the harvest of peace and righteousness. Then God changes the metaphor, as we'll see in a few weeks in Isaiah chapter 5, to that of a, of a garden and a vineyard. And its owner has done everything he can so that that vineyard will produce good grapes. And he says in verse 4, what more was there to do for this vineyard? And that's what he's saying in chapter 1. What's, what more could I have done for my people than I have done? And, and I wonder this morning, do you know what God has invested in you as his child? He has given you new birth. He has given you an opportunity to grow in your faith. He's invested for many of you years and years in rearing you and bringing you up. And what have we done in return? Well, this is God's second complaint, their rebellion. And that is mixed in this passage, chapters two, uh, verses 2 to 10. The end of verse 2 says, but they have rebelled against me. They've said, no, God, we don't want you to be over us. We don't want you to be our parent and have that authority. In fact, the text implies they of all people rebelled. After God had tenderly cared for them, they, they threw him off. As parents, we can appreciate how frustrating it is and, and frankly how galling it is sometimes when our parents don't appreciate the things that we've done for them. And that's what God charges his people with. He says in verse 3, they are dumber than animals. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. Even animals know who owns them and who cares for them, and my people have completely disregarded me. Verse 4, they are loaded, laden with iniquity. They're heavy with their sin. 
They have forsaken the Lord and despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. They have taken their father God and thrown him behind their back and said, we want nothing more to do with him. He goes on, why will you continue to rebel, verse 5? It emphasizes their stubbornness, that they insist on going their own way. And I wonder, do you have any elements of stubbornness in your heart against your creator God and your father? And then he concludes this section in verses 9 and 10 by saying they are as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah, those cesspools of wickedness and perverseness whose stench rose up so odious to heaven that fire and burning sulfur came down and destroyed those cities. That's God's complaint against his people. Then he gives two specific charges in verses 11 to 17. The first charge is that of disobedience. They were not obeying his law. How so? Well, let's look at a few examples of the case he is building against his people. Verse 15. Your hands are full of blood, it says at the end of verse 15. They were committing murder. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. They were doing evil, a word that means to break or to injure or to hurt. I think speaking of how we treat other people. And then verse 17, he says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. As a society of God's people, they had left God's ways of justice and compassion. You know, compassion for the fatherless and the widow, for the needy and the helpless, is something that is required of the people of God. In fact, Jesus in the parable in Matthew 25 of the sheep and the goats said, this is one of the defining characteristics of God's people is they care for those who are needy. And that's why the Cropsies and the Gales and the Kendalls are serving the needy in Togo. This is who we are when God has made us new people through the Holy Spirit. But justice is something different. Now, the words are not debatable in verse 17. It says, seek justice. And it literally says, correct the oppressor. Stop the one who is committing injustice. You're getting very quiet. I think the words are clear. In any society, God desires justice. But in a theocratic society like Israel's, God demanded it. The teaching is clear. God is always on the side of justice. God is always against the oppressor. That's who God is. And we should all, my friends and brothers and sisters, be able to agree on that. Now, I read the commentary by Alex Motier on this verse, and I was hoping he would sort some stuff out for us. And, and he just had a short little section, and this is how he, he ended his comment on verse 17. He said, Isaiah looks for a transformed society wherever it needs transforming. And I thought, yes, that's exactly right. Can we just stop there? Well, that's the issue in front of us, is it not, in our society today? 
What we may disagree on is not whether God is against injustice, but on where we actually have injustice in our society, and if so, how it needs to be changed. But my friends, can we have that discussion underneath the rubric that God loves justice, and God hates the oppressor? And then let's talk about if we need to fix things in our own society. His first charge against his people was disobedience. His second was hypocrisy. They were still pretending to be religious people. Look at verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. And he goes on and on. He is saying, you folks are pretending to be religious but your hearts are not with me at all because of the way you're living. You see, God cannot be fooled. He will not be mocked. And he says later in Isaiah 29, this people draw near to me with their mouth, but their hearts are far from me. My friends, God hates that. Verse 14, my soul hates it. I hate it with all of my heart. I hate it when you come to church on Sunday all dressed up and you look nice and you put some money in the plate and then Monday through Saturday you live however you want. I hate that, he says. He hates hypocrisy and he will not tolerate it. So the evidence has been presented, verses 1 to 17, and now it is time for the verdict. Verse 18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. A most unusual word here. It means to argue, it means to prove, it means to decide. God says, now I've laid out the evidence, let's decide the case. God has them dead to rights. There is no possible legal chance of acquittal. Reasoning together with God when we're so clearly guilty is the task of a fool. But listen, while we do not have an argument before the court of cosmic justice, we do have a promise. And the promise is in the, the rest of the verse. The promise says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. The amazing promise is this, that I will wash your sins clean. And here in typical Hebrew format, he uses parallelism. He says the same thing twice. Scarlet red possibly refers to the blood guilt of murder that he mentioned in verse 15, but it, it probably is the sum accumulation of all of our sins. And the image is not of a stain, but of a dye. It's of a red dye, double dipped. So you have a piece of cloth now that is dyed once and then it is dyed twice. What is going to get that stain out? Even all the laundry detergent in the world cannot get dye out. You've seen all the ads. The good detergents these days all have stain lifters. <laughs> all, for instance, as stains have met their match. Give us your worst, we'll give it our all. <laughs> but my friend, sin does not leave stains. It dyes our hearts irretrievably beyond human repair. Shakespeare understood this and wrote of it so eloquently in Macbeth. 
Lady Macbeth is plotting the death of King Duncan so that her husband can become king. And as she thinks about it, in the night, she begins to rub her hands together because she knows what they're about to do is wrong. And she rubs her hands together for 15 minutes or more. And then she looks at them, and what does she see? She, she, she sees on her hands the stain of guilt. And the famous line is this. She cries out, out, damned spot. Will these hands never be clean? And lest you think I just swore in church, <laughs> that is exactly, my friends, what our sin does for us. It makes us guilty in the courts of God, and it sends us to eternal damnation. And then, my friends, it is God who says, out, damned spot. He makes an amazing and unbelievable offer of forgiveness to take these dyed, sin-sick souls and to cleanse them up. And, and this offer seems too good to be true, and yet, yet it is. Here it is. We just read it. Well, how does this offer work? Isaiah doesn't describe it here. There are mysteries yet to be revealed in the book of Isaiah, and mysteries that don't become fully clear until the New Testament, because the New Testament is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. So we need the full revelation of Scripture to understand what magic, what, what divine magic is happening in verse 18. And the magic is this. The, the principle is this. While God tired of their meaningless sacrifices, there is a sacrifice in which the Lord does delight. And that was the sacrifice of the pure, holy Lamb of God who was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And here it is, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How does God wash out the stain of sin? He puts it on Jesus Christ himself. Revelation 7 speaks of saints who have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. And I wonder, my friends, what strange divine alchemy can take red and red and turn it white. God takes the red of our sin and combines it with the red of the blood of Christ, and he turns it into the righteousness of Christ. What is required of us? Only two things. First of all, we must turn. And this is the theme of our first section of the book of Isaiah. Did you notice what he said in verse 16? Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes. They couldn't cleanse themselves, but what they could do is say, God, we agree with you that our sin is horrible and we want to be rid of it. Would you help us? And that is what the New Testament calls repentance. It's saying, God, we hate our sin. Would you please deliver us and cleanse us from it? That's the first thing. The second thing is to believe in the Lamb of God who shed his blood for the world. And that was the message that Jesus preached. Repent and believe for the forgiveness of sins. And this is such a beautiful, important, central message that Jesus told us to remember it until he came back. So I'd like to just, this seems to me to be a great time, doesn't it, to remember the Lord's death.
remember in sacrament what he did for us. And what we're going to do in just a few moments is use the symbols that he's given us, and I hope you've all gotten one of these little packets. We're going to partake of these in a moment. But as we do that, I want to change the, the metaphor for a moment, if I can. And I'm going to give you a picture of what the grace of God does for us. This is a bucket of pure, clean water. That's how God originally made us. But what did we do? This is just a glass of dirt. So what happens when we sin is we dump dirt into God's purity. A little anger, a little greed, some lust, some sharp words, and on and on and on it goes. And then what happens to our hearts? This isn't red, but it's the same idea. This is what we have done to the pure hearts that God has given us. Anybody want a cup of this? God can't tolerate that. He hates sin. It's disgusting to him. But there's a filter. And if we can just get all of those impurities out, watch what happens. It's working a little slow, but it's coming out. It is that water. This water is now so pure that I can actually drink it. That's what the blood of Jesus does for us. Amen. And we remember that with the symbols that he's given us. This that we're going to do right now, participation in this is for everybody who has had their sins washed clean in the blood of Jesus. If you know him, you're welcome to partake with us. If you don't, then, then just don't participate. And I've got a couple words for you at the end of the, the message today. But we're glad you're here or we're glad you're listening online. But right now, let me invite you to just peel back the top part of that cup and to take the wafer. And we want to remember the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't just say words from heaven. He came down from heaven, lived in a body that suffered pain and wounding and shame and ultimately death. So my friends, my fellow sinners, this is the body of Christ which is broken for you. Take, eat in remembrance of him. And then Jesus goes on to say after supper he took the cup and said this blood is the new covenant in my blood, that this cup represents my life that I've given for you. Would you take it and drink it in remembrance of me? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain but he made it white as snow. Would you just sing that chorus with me for a moment? Jesus paid it all, all 
sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Jesus, we thank you that you have taken our sin as red as crimson and somehow washed it in your blood and made us white as snow. Every single thing we have ever done against your law, you have taken and washed it out. We worship you, our Savior. We give you our thanks, and we give you our lives afresh. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, amen. Well, this has been a precious moment, and I don't want to take away from it, but I do want to add to it because our text goes on. And I think there's a danger in church that we come and we, we celebrate Jesus and we celebrate our forgiveness and we live in our little holy huddle and we go back and eat our lunch and watch our sports and take our nap and it's just us and Jesus and, and that's not how it should be. So there's two more facets to this amazing offer of forgiveness. The first is that it is not reasonable the second is that it is not limited, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. It is not limited. It is beyond ethnicity. Now, surely an offer this incredible can't be good for everyone in the whole world, could it? I mean, everyone who's ever lived in all 7.9 billion people on the world today, I mean, how could one sacrifice cover for all of them? Plus, you know, as long as I'm in, I'm good, right? I don't really care about everybody else. That's our reaction. But the Bible and Jesus won't let us stay there. Because the wonder of the Messiah is that even though he was a Jew, he did not come only for the Jews. And that is what they were expecting and still expect today, many of them. But as we're going to see in Isaiah 49, it prophesies the coming of the Messiah, the servant of the Lord. And it says it will be too small a thing for him to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel. I will make him a light for the nations that he might bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This offer is so incredible that it's not limited to any ethnic group of people. Amen. Thank you, brother. <laughs> and it's right here in chapter 2. Would you look at it with me, verse 2? It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What an amazing passage. Just a picture of Jesus ruling in Jerusalem and of the nations streaming to him from all over the world with all their many ethnicities and languages. And it's a picture of the time that is coming when there will be no more war on this earth. Now let me ask you, has this happened yet? No. Oh, how I wish it had, but it's clear that this has not been fulfilled. I think this is description of the coming millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ on earth. That's my own interpretation of these passages. 
And as part of that vision, God sees all nations coming together to worship Jesus in Jerusalem. And what Jesus did is he took this vision a step further. He began to inaugurate it because he understood that the Father's plan was to bring all nations into his temple, into his house, into his family. And so Jesus said, we're going to begin to fulfill this now because I'm sending you to go and make disciples of all nations. We're not going to finish this job, but it will be finished during the millennial reign as all nations come before him. Jesus is anticipating this global, multi-ethnic, international kingdom. And this is our call to go. We haven't been able to go very much in this past year, year and a half. But as soon as things open up again, we're going to be taking some of these filters with a group called Filter of Hope to the country of Cuba and maybe other countries in years ahead. We're going to allow you to have an opportunity to go and proclaim the name of Christ among the nations. And we want you to be ready to join us when God opens up the world again. So that's the second feature of this amazing offer. It's not limited. And third and finally, this amazing offer is not without an expiration date. Chapter 2, verses 6 to 22. It is not beyond time. You may think that such a gracious God would one day just forgive everybody. Well, he does forgive everyone who turns to him in repentance and faith. Every single one. But the problem is that not everyone turns to him in repentance and faith. And that may be true of some of you here in this room today or listening online this morning. You may be holding back. You may be in that first category of rebelling, of making God estranged from you, of throwing off his yoke. You may be thinking, I'm going to do this later on. When, when things settle down or when I get a little older, after I've enjoyed myself, I'm going to come back to God. My friends, you need to hear the words of chapter 2 because one day God is going to blow the final whistle and then this game of life will be over. He will come on the clouds with power and great glory and it says every eye will see him and those who have pierced him will mourn. The time for washing will be over. The time for judgment will be there. And he describes it in chapter 2. Let me just read a few verses. Verse 10, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Verse 17. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. My friends, Jesus, this gentle lamb of God, is one day going to rise to terrify the earth. And if you think this is only hard Old Testament language, it gets even worse in the New Testament. This is what happens in Revelation chapter 6. After the sixth seal is open, 
than the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful. And everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? My friends, this offer does not last forever. It has an expiration date, like your milk in your fridge. And one day it will be taken off the table when Jesus comes back and exalts himself over all of the glory and strength of man. And then he will judge every single living person. That day will come like a thief in the night when you're least expecting it. But the good news is that you can get ready for it right now. You can receive this unbelievable offer from God. You can hand him your sins. You can wash them in the blood of the lamb. And you can come out sparkling clean. Would you do that today if you haven't yet? Or one day you will have to hide from his face. The text says, come now. And as Charles Spurgeon said, no season can be better. You may never have another warning. Your heart may never be so tender as it is now. Tomorrow you may never see. Come now, it is God's time. Tomorrow is the devil's time. Do not harden your heart. Why delay to be happy? Would you put off your wedding day? Will you postpone the hour when you are pardoned and delivered? Come now. The eye of your father sees you afar off, and he runs to meet you. Friends, there's going to be some elders that will be at the front after this service. Myself, we would love to walk you through that process of embracing the Lamb of God so that his blood can wash you clean from your sins. If you're online, just send us a note to yourchurch.com. Slash next, I think, is what it is, and we'd love to get in touch with you. That's how you need to respond. And for those of us who have been washed, we've worshipped Jesus already. Our response now is to worship him again. And as the musicians come, we're going to sing a final song as we worship our Savior for the blood of Jesus that ran red to make us as white as snow. Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus. We are in awe of you, of this amazing offer of free forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for this great love and this great sacrifice, this amazing process by which all of our guilt and shame can be washed away and we can be ready, Lord Jesus, to look you in the face when you come, to hear your words, welcome into my kingdom because my blood has covered your sins. We give you our praise, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.